Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now, here's Pastor Daryl. It's time for the Word. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I need your help. Lord, you know the thoughts that you have put on my mind, on my heart. You know what you want me to share. Father, I pray that you would just empower me, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would help me know what to say, when to speak, and when to be silent. Father, as we open your word, I'm asking that the blood of Jesus would cover me, that you would cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that you might be able to use me today, Father, in spite of who I am. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. We've had a little bit longer service today, and so there could be a tendency to tune out Father, what needs to be tuned out are our distractions. So help us set those aside. Give us that fresh wind, as it were. And let us now have that vigor and endurance. Spend a little time in the Word. Teach us, Father. Instruct us. Challenge us. Make us your children. Fit us for the kingdom, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you own a can opener? Have a can opener. Now, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. You desire to open a canned item. I don't care if it's soup, beans, whatever you might get out of a can. I, for one, like soup. So let's imagine I've got this nice big can of tomato soup, because that's the best. Somebody laughed as if I'm crazy. (laughs) Tomato soup's the best, brother. It's my favorite anyway. Let's imagine, though, I'm ready to make that can of tomato soup, and instead of going to the drawer and pulling out the can opener, I go out to my little toolbox in the garage, and I get a flathead screwdriver and a hammer. And I start working my way. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, that's what I do all the time. (laughs) Listen, go to Walmart or somewhere. Get a can opener, right? Because why would I take a screwdriver and a hammer to open my can of soup destroy it, make a mess, perhaps contaminate the contents, because when's the last time you sterilized your screwdriver? But instead of using that modern convenience, instead of using that which could make my life easier, I leave it to the side. Let's say that it's time to mow the lawn. How many of you mow your own grass? Okay. How many of you do it with one of those old 1940s, 1950s cylindrical bladed mowers that is only powered by you? Now, I've only historically seen that those exist. Praise God I don't have to use one. But can you imagine, let's say you've got a very nice riding lawnmower or even a push mower if you have a small lawn. Denise looking at me. Imagine, Danute, instead of using those nice zero-turn mowers that you use, you left those on the trailer and said, nope, we're going to cut every lawn with one of these nice cylindrical-bladed mowers. Would somebody be looking at me like, are you crazy? 
And let's imagine, now it's time for you to bathe. And instead of going in there where you have those two dials, right, those two handles, one has an H, one has a C, and I don't know about you, but I know exactly, some of you will find this surprising, Nick won't, but I know exactly the position that H has to be in and the angle that that C has to be in to give me the perfect shower. Anybody else have their recipe dialed in? You know what I'm talking about? Now, my wife, she likes water so hot that it melts your flesh. I'm a little bit more Laodicean in my showers. I like mine a little more lukewarm. But imagine instead of participating that way to cleanse myself, no, I'm just going to go outside, I'm going to rustle up the garden hose, and I'm just going to bathe myself out. Well, let's just not go there. Some of you may be wondering, is the pastor trying to inspire us to go back to pioneer days? May I say to you a resounding no. The point I'm trying to make is if you have all these modern conveniences, if you have these things that make your life easier, why would you not avail yourself of them? Does that make sense to you, yes or no? Is anybody now inspired because of the introduction to this sermon to now go home and open your cans with a screwdriver and a hammer, other than my brother over here who already does it? Not a single one of you, right? You're saying, well, that's crazy. Why would I do that? If I have something that's been given to me as a convenience, definitely makes my life easier, and not only easier, but safer, why would I not avail myself of it? Friends, let me ask you a question. Could the same be said of the gospel? Could the same be said of the gospel? Do you and I have the gospel at our disposal? Has it been made available to you? Question for you. Do we, more than any other, and I'm not talking about just Seventh-day Adventists, I'm talking about Christianity in the modern era, do we know more about scriptures and fulfillment of prophecy than any other group of people that have ever lived on the planet? So there should be no problem with us finding salvation. People should be saved by the droves because of the information that we have. Is that reality? Turn with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 10. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. We're picking up where we have been studying. Last week we looked at Romans 9. We made some discoveries. Romans chapter 10, if you'll look with me in verse 1. Let's dial in here and find the heart of this message for this week's chapter. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be what? Now, question that I want to kind of pose to you and kind of let linger in your mind for a moment. When he speaks of Israel here, is he speaking of Israel in the past, corporate Israel, or is he speaking currently of those Jews who have accepted Christ and are now a part of the church? I'm not asking you to answer it. I want you to think about it, okay? Because answering that question actually helps us make sense of chapter 11 when we talk about that next week. So I want to pose that for you, let you be marinating on that. For I bear witness 
Romans 10 verse 2, are you still with me? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Friends, what is zeal? Is zeal time to go camping? Man, I can't wait to go camping. Or is zeal, it's time to go camping. I'm glad I worked so hard to have a house so I could go sleep outside. (laughs) I'm so glad that I spent all that money on that mattress so I could go sleep on the ground. Does that sound like I'm zealous about camping if I describe it that way? No. No. Zeal, right, is when I have an enthusiastic expression for something. Question for you. Were the religious leaders in Jesus' day zealous for the things of God? At least by their understanding. I'm not asking if they had it right. Were they zealous? Okay, a couple of passages. Let's look at them together. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to take just a brief adventure here. First, I want us to go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, please. Turn with me there. Luke what? Luke chapter 3. Let's go to verse 7. When you're there, just give me a hearty amen. Amen. If you need more time, say have mercy. All right, nobody asked for it, so here we go. Then he said to the multitudes, this is John speaking, right? He's there at the Jordan River. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I'm thinking about that for my next evangelistic series. The handbill that will go out to all my neighbors, Joe, will say, Brood of Vipers, welcome. How many do you think I'll get? Probably not going to be a very big turnout, right? To whom is John speaking? Maybe. Let's see if anybody else in Scripture also uses this term. In fact, go with me to Matthew 12 now. Matthew 12, and let's look at verse 34. Matthew what? In verse 34. Now, if you go to the very top of the chapter, you'll know that Jesus is talking to the leadership and the multitude that has gathered. And he says, what's the first words? Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, what happens with the mouth? The mouth speaks. Again, we see Jesus use this same reference in Matthew 23, verse 33. We won't turn there, but again, he's referencing the leadership. So we see that there were people who were willing to turn up, right? One of the examples that we've got to look at is Luke chapter 4. I know I took you from Luke to Matthew, but now let's go back quickly to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. Let's see some of their zeal in action because it wasn't just the leadership. Luke chapter 4. Verse 21. Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth. They get out the scroll. They've asked him to do some reading. He reads from Isaiah. And then notice what he says. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How do you think the people responded? Basically, he reads it's this messianic prophecy, 
And then Jesus says, today, this messianic prophecy is fulfilled. In other words, I'm the guy that you've been looking for. This is his public declaration in his home synagogue, perhaps, where he says, I am he for whom you have looked. Today in your hearing is the scripture fulfilled. How do you think they felt about it? Well, you don't have to guess reading at verse 22. As soon as he starts saying, I'm the Messiah, they don't see the Messiah. They see the guy that for the last how many ever years has been working at the carpenter's bench. They start asking, wait a minute, this guy's the Messiah? I know he's a good kid. He's never really caused any trouble. In fact, I can't think of anything he's done wrong. But isn't that just Joseph's boy? So the reaction is one of doubt, one of disbelief. Notice verse 28, Luke 4, 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with joy and happiness. Think about this. Your entire religious existence has hinged upon waiting for the Messiah. You finally hear that he's here and you're angry? You're mad? You're upset? Are you crazy? And they don't just get upset, saints. They took it to the streets. Look at verse 29. They were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. They didn't just drag him out of the synagogue. They drug him out of the city limits. And then they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Friends, does that sound to you like people who are zealous? I mean, if you don't care about the sermon, I as a pastor with a little over 13 years of ministry experience, I can tell you how people react when they're not enthusiastic about the sermon. Would you like for me to describe that for you? Do you mind if I use you as examples in the congregation? I'm just picking. I'm not going to do that. But I can tell you when people aren't interested in the sermon, there's a number of reactions. It's the most common one. Right? And sometimes people prefer to do the more forward. They prefer the prayer snooze. I'm talking that you are so motivated by what you have heard that you're willing to drag someone out of the church and throw them off of a cliff to commit murder as a mob. Friends, if that's not a definition of zeal, I can't think of one. Let's go back to Romans. Romans 10. So, now when we read Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, and Paul says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, is he speaking the truth? Absolutely. And he probably has some reminders. In fact, what had Paul been doing? What had Saul been doing before he was known as Paul? Was he a zealous kind of guy? You better believe it. But, notice the negating conjunction, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. 
when I studied for this sermon, I was bothered by the word ignorant. It bothered me. Because when I think of being ignorant of something, I simply think of that as being unaware. Would you agree with that? I'm ignorant of how to do that. Right? It's not really a word that we use very much. We will simply, instead of telling someone, hey, do you know how to do that? No, I'm ignorant about how to do that. We don't really use that. We'll just simply say, I don't know how to do that. Right? That's kind of what was in my mind. And so when I read this, I kept asking myself, really? You mean to tell me these people didn't know what God wanted of them? And so I started digging a little bit more. I started digging into this word, and I had to know a little bit more about this word. Now, the word that I found that's behind what's been translated here as ignorant is a word that I had not come across before, Agnaeo. Now, anytime you have an A in the front of a Greek word, it is a word that negates, right? How many of you ever heard the term agnostic? I love it when people tell me that I'm agnostic because A means without and gnosis means knowledge. So an agnostic is simply telling you that they don't know anything. No, no, no. I don't mean it like that. If they're saying I'm agnostic towards God, hopefully they're saying, listen, I just don't know enough to make a decision. That's that's what I'm I'm assuming they know other things. So when I looked at this, when I dug into this word and started looking at how it could be translated, it's in a participial form. Now, as a kind of a nod to our teacher appreciation week, praise God for our teachers, amen? I'm very thankful for our teachers across the way. I'm thankful for all of our Adventist people who are teachers, whether they're in the public system or the Adventist system. Participle, what is that? Well, it's a part of speech that indicates ongoing action. So this is something that they didn't just do in the past. It's ignorance that's ongoing. In fact, because of the way that they're applying that ignorance, it's what we would refer to as willful ignorance. I try to tell you how to do it, but no, 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 you persist. You ever been around somebody like that? You try to show them the right way. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to know. Well, where I come from, willful ignorance is often referred to as stupidity. I don't want to be classified as such. How about you? But what we see coming out here in the text is they're not ignorant in the sense that they've never been informed. They remain ignorant in that it has not become manifest in their life. Are you with me? Right? And I wish some of our translations would bring out a few more of these little details. But how do we know that it's willful ignorance? Look at the last part of verse 3. Even without digging into all of that Greek, if I had just stuck to the text, what does it tell us that they've not done? It's not a secret. What's it say? Help me out. They have not what? They've not submitted to what? To God's righteousness. So help me out, brother. If they've not submitted to it, is that an indication that they're aware of it? I cannot submit to something. I cannot be accused of failing to submit to something if I don't know. Say I get pulled over. 
I'm a big one in civil rights. I believe that people should stand up for their rights. Men and women have bled and died so that you have those rights. Don't just hand them over to somebody. Amen? Say, I get pulled over. And let's say that the kind police officer says, I'd like to search your vehicle. You can better believe this brother's going to say, why? What need, what extenuating circumstances do you have that tells, I have nothing to hide, nothing in my vehicle, I'm not smuggling, I'm not a drug mule. Somebody should have said amen. <laughs> Some of you looked at me like, really, he's not? Saints, when I tell you I'm not a criminal, can you at least praise God for that? Mercy. But if I had no knowledge of my civil rights, and perhaps the well-intending officer trying to do their due diligence, because I do believe there are good people in law enforcement. There's good people in every profession, just like there's bad apples in every profession. Amen? But I can't submit to something that I don't know about. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then I love this beautiful news that comes along. Notice verse 4, Romans 10, verse 4. Are you with me? For Christ is the end of the law. And then some Christians stop reading right there. Friends, this is actually one of the verses that some Christians will point to and say, see right there, Christ did away with the moral law. Can we be honest to the text? Does it stop that says Christ is the end of the law? Is that the end of the verse? What is the qualifier? He's the end of the law when it is used for what purpose? So in other words, Jesus, he came along. You guys were wrapped up in this system of if I do all of this, if I check the boxes, if I participate in the services, if I go to the festivals, if I go to the feasts, if I do this, blah, 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 then I'm saved. No. Paul is reminding those believers in Rome that Christ came along to put an end to that foolishness. Christ came along to put an end of trying to keep the law to save yourself. And I praise God that we don't live under that kind of system. How about you? But it does not, please hear me clearly, it does not negate the moral law of God. It is still wrong to have other gods. It's still wrong to commit adultery. Oh, mercy, I had one amen. <laughs> I'm going to have to retire. I have failed as a pastor. It is wrong to commit adultery. Praise God, I got five more. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal, to lie, to covet. Those things are still wrong, right? Because they are morally wrong. There's nothing that Christ came to do to fulfill that in that step that he kept it himself. And that doesn't negate it just because he kept it. As we go down through the text, we have a few more things that make it very clear that they have had the opportunity to hear, and yet they have rejected it. Go with me to verse 8. Romans 10 and verse 8. He's quoting here from where in the Old Testament? Do you remember? Did you look at that? One of my favorite things to do when I read a passage is to chase down the references. And I love Paul, especially in Romans here. He is just replete with all these quotes from the Old Testament. This one happens to come from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he actually quotes verses 12, 13, and 14. Verse 8 has verse 14, 
It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 9 here, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. And then I love this universal extension of the gospel. Verse 11. Here we have a quote, this time from Isaiah 28. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12 says that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who come to him. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he says in verse 13, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? So friends, have you ever heard someone say that there's no grace, mercy, and love in the Old Testament? I've heard Christians say that. I've actually heard Christians tell me, listen, I don't want that old angry God of the Old Testament. I want the kind and loving and gentle Jesus. Which testament does the book of Joel belong to? So was there a little grace and mercy in the Old Testament? In fact, the entire theological basis, hear me clearly, the entire theological basis for Jesus' ministry is based on the teaching from the Old Testament. So friends, don't get sucked into this lie that is perpetrated that the Old Testament was written for the Jews and the New Testament was written for Christians. Well, if I do that, what Bible is Paul allowed to quote? I mean, what other Bible could he quote? There is no other Testament. Friends, the Old and New Testaments are intrinsically woven together. One supports and substantiates the other. They're not in some sort of competition or battle against each other. They work together to paint this beautiful picture that salvation, the right way to salvation, not through a system of works, but through grace, mercy, and love, that same system of salvation has been available to Israel since their very beginning. So let's go back to the question. Were they really ignorant of how to find the righteousness of God? The only possible answer is to let the text be heard. They have been willfully ignorant. Might I put it this way? They've left the can opener in the drawer. Are you tracking? Let's land this together. We're almost finished here. Stay with me just a few more moments. The last thing I want you to see in the last part of this chapter from verses 14 to 21, Paul continues to make his case. I love Paul has such a breadth of knowledge of the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit is able to tap into when he was writing this epistle, that he presents a case that at the end of this, You cannot look him in the face and honestly say you didn't know, right? Verse 14, this is one of the famous verses that pastors often look to to substantiate their existence. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and then he quotes here from Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of what? Wait a minute. 
the gospel of peace is mentioned in the Old Testament? (gasps) Same Bible. Same God. I would say to you, the only difference between the Old and New Testament is this. In the Old Testament, we see that God is still trying to address his people corporately. By the time you get to the New Testament, the leadership is so messed up, they're under a yoke of bondage. And so now what we see is simply Christ dealing with people a little bit more one-on-one. He still addresses the leadership. Must I remind you of brood of vipers? <laughs> right? He's still addressing them. That's the only difference. It's just a matter of focus. But the gospel has always been there. And I love that it's not called a gospel of war. It's not called a gospel of disaster. Isaiah refers to it as a gospel of what? Gospel of peace. So the message that has been given to them over and over and over again is a message bearing the gospel of peace. But notice verse 16, what has been the collective response in general of Israel. First part of verse 16, what does it say? Have they been faithful? They have not been faithful, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Lord, who has believed our report? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This is part of the scripture reading that Dr. Chapman read for us this morning. The voice that is going out from Psalm 19. Who are the preachers in Psalm 19? Did you pick up on it? Oh, turn back to Psalm 19. You got to catch this. Huh? Careful. Go back and look at it first. Go back and look at it. And I'll give you a clue. It's found before verse 2. How's that for a clue? Who's declaring the glory of God? The heavens are doing the declaration. It's the heavens that are doing the preaching. And so I love how Paul ties this in. Listen, if you've not listened to any of the preachers, at least you've had eyes to see the heavens. And if you missed it in every sermon, every speech, every Bible study that's ever been given to you, at the very least, you cannot stand outside at night and see what God has created and not recognize that we have somebody higher than us. The preacher that they have heard at a bare minimum is that glory declared by the heavens. Verse 21 brings us to a sad conclusion of their testimony. This time from Isaiah 65. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to what type of people? Disobedient, not just disobedient. Do you get the combination there? They're not just people who go against what you're trying to tell them, but they're irritating in the process. Aren't you glad that none of us are like that? We don't just disagree. We've got to irritate you in the process. I've stretched out my hands 
to a disobedient and contrary people. They've left the can opener in the drawer. They've left the mower in the shed. They've walked outside to take their bath. Do you get all the examples? You see where I was headed with that? Everything has been provided for them, but has it done them any good? For the Israel, the gospel was not a gospel of peace. It was a fruitless gospel. And what a sad declaration. Is the gospel intended to be fruitless? The gospel is intended to change my life. But how many of us simply go through the motions, we hear the message, blah, 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 when will he be quiet? See, I love days like today because I get both ends of the spectrum. Roy, here's what I mean by that. People watching the service. Is that brother ever going to get up and speak? And then after I preach, is he ever going to shut up? Not everybody, of course. But friends, my question as I draw this to a close is this. You've been given the gospel of peace. Don't tell me you've never heard it. You've been taught about prophecy. In fact, most of you could teach a course on prophecy that would be an advanced course for the average American citizen. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know everything about prophecy. Can you explain the basic principles behind 1844? Yes, many of you can. That's an advanced course on prophecy for people who don't know anything about the Scripture. Am I right? You've been given the gospel of peace. You know advanced courses in prophecy. You've seen fulfillment of prophecy, at least historically. Friends, you and I have been given more of the gospel of peace than any other generations to live on this earth. And yet I ask the question, have we all obeyed? I have to tell you, I've not always been faithful. I find times throughout my daily weeks and months where I find myself going back to the throne of grace saying, Lord, why do I keep falling? Anybody else wrestle with that kind of stuff? Friends, today I want to make a commitment to my God. I don't want the gospel of peace to be fruitless in my life. I want the gospel of peace to be transformative in my life. I want to be a different man tomorrow than I am today. I want to be a little more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. I don't want the gospel to be fruitless. I want it to bear that fruit, that glorious fruit, that beautiful fruit that we hear about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. I need that. I need to be more loving. I need to be more patient, more long-suffering, more gentle. Anybody else? So today, here's my commitment. I don't want to be willfully ignorant. I want to be committed to my Lord Jesus Christ. Not that I'm trying to save myself, but that I'm so in love with this Jesus who gave his life for me that I'm willing to follow him anywhere he leads me. I wonder if there's anybody else that would like to make that commitment with me today. Will you pray with me, please?
Dear Father, I thank you for this time we could spend in the Word. And Lord, I thank you that you, you don't give up on us. Yes, you'll hold us accountable. You'll tell us where we've been out in left field somewhere. But you're still there lovingly calling us home. Lovingly raising a standard. And the thing I love, Lord, is you don't come and say, listen, here's the standard, meet it. You say, here's the standard. Let me introduce you to my son, Jesus, because he's already met it. Father, please forgive us where we have fallen short. Forgive us where we have left the gospel in the drawer, where it's not been fruitful in our lives. Lord, if the gospel has been fruitless to us, please rebuke us. Because we're told in Revelation 3 that those whom you love, you rebuke and chasten. Why? Because Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Lord, I know you're only trying to fit me, fit us for heaven. We can't do it on our own. We need your help. So, Father, please, today, strip away the filthy rags of our righteousnesses and clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Father, thank you for that beautiful sacrifice that was made on our behalf. May we live and may the fruit of the gospel be evident to you and be a blessing to the world around us. We thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. You have been listening to Daryl Bentley, pastor of the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit his church this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Metropolitan Seventh-day Adventist Church at 15585 North Haggerty Road in Plymouth, Michigan, and their worship service starts at 1045 a.m. Their website is www.metrosdachurch.org. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.